do you guys ever feel like, like you just don't know what's going to come tomorrow? Everything you were certain of feels incredibly uncertain now. Do you ever feel like that? Like, maybe there's a time when you used to feel like you could predict the future, you know, at least to some degree. Like you kind of had some feeling of certainty, and, and that just all seems to have gone bye-bye. No one knows what's around the corner. No one knows what's coming next. I think, I think I've recognized right now in our culture, in our society, that we are at a place of angst and anxiety and depression and overwhelm and unprecedented levels. It is off the charts. And we can blame a pandemic, but ultimately the pandemic just exacerbated the problem that was already growing inside of many of us. Uncertainty about the future. We begin March 2020, life's normal, everything's fine. By the end of March 2020, it feels like hell has taken over earth and everything has fallen apart and no one knows what's coming. Are we going to survive this thing? Is the economy going to bounce back? Am I going to be healthy? Am I going to get sick? Everything is uncertain. And there's a, there's a, a whole age gap right now in, of people who were in school in very pivotal times who experienced the most uncertainty of all. I don't know. Am I going to go to school or not? It was cool the, the second week of spring break, like that's pretty cool, but not the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth week of spring break. And then I don't know now, am I, are we going to get to do prom or not? Or are we going to get to do homecoming or not? Are we going to play football or not? Are we going to get to, who knows what's going to happen now? Everything felt so uncertain. And there was this increase, this incredible increase in anxiety, the sense of people being overwhelmed all the time. I know there are some of you in this room right now suffering with that. You feel like you're flying blind in life right now. Like you just can't tell which way is up and down and right and left and what obstacles are in front of you. You're just trying to make it through this world. But I also bet there are some of you and you've met some people and it's shocking how poised and how graceful, how confident they seem to be, even though their life isn't perfect. I mean, you look at them and you, you know that things aren't always easy, but they just seem to be in control, calm, at peace, and you're wondering, okay, what do they have that I don't have? Well, they actually do have something you don't have. They have some, something, a skill that you haven't quite learned yet, potentially. It's the skill of flying blind. So I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he's getting his pilot's license, and he was telling me about, I, I asked the question, he was telling me about his journey toward it, I said, well, what do you do when you fly into a cloud? He was talking about how he flies smaller planes, and he said, well, I don't. I'm not allowed to fly into a cloud uh, because I, that, there's a certain license you need. You have to have a certain amount of training to learn how to, what they call, fly blind. When you fly into a cloud, you can no longer trust your eyesight to indicate where the horizon is or any other obstacles. And so uh, you have to completely rely on a different source of information, not your eyes. And I have to stay below the, the cloud line or I'm not allowed to fly. And so I thought, no, that's, that's a pretty cool idea. I think I might have to dig into that. And so a couple months ago, I, I decided, I was looking over this text for today, that I was going to use that as an illustration. But I, I didn't know what was going to happen to me just a, a month after that moment. So uh, a while back, just back in, I guess, late May, we had a get-together to celebrate my daughter, Abby, who was graduating from high school with a few of her other friends. And we were at her friend, who happened to be named Abby as well, her house, and I met her dad. Her dad's name is Greg. And we had a great time playing over there. We played like sand volleyball they had at their house. We had a bunch of games. I got to sit and talk with Greg for all. Really cool guy. Enjoyed getting to know him. And then a, a month after that moment, we're getting on an airplane 
because the eight of us are going to fly to Frankfurt for our three-week trip to Europe, and I'm getting on this Boeing 777, beautiful plane. I walk on there, and, and I see some flight attendants, and, and then I notice uh, the pilot, and I look at him, and I go, you, and he goes, hey, you, and it was Greg, the guy whose house I'd been at a month before. I didn't even know he was a pilot when I'm playing sand volleyball with him. And here he is flying the plane that's going to take us all the way to Germany. And it was just the wildest chain of events. He came back after I had saw him talk to him for a little bit, right before the plane took off. We're sitting in our seats. He says, hey, guys, when we land in Germany, why don't you guys come on front? I'm going to show you the cockpit, give you a tour of this Boeing 777, which I thought, this is perfect. <laughs> we got up there into the front when we landed quite well. I might add, he did a good job landing the plane. And we went off to the, to the front and got to see it. I have a picture of a few of my kids sitting in the pilot seat. Let's see if we can throw that up there. This is them sitting there in the front of that. You can see all the switches and all the panels and instruments over there. And so we got to sit there and, and listen to Greg explain all this stuff to us. And I asked him, okay, tell me, I, I heard about this whole concept of flying and blind and clouds and uh, tell me a bit more about that. And so he went through the whole thing. He started showing me some of those panels right there and how uh, this is the, indicates the horizon because when you're flying in a cloud, you lose all your bearing of up and down. And if the cloud is low enough, you can end up going down, just a small degree down, not even realize it, and get dangerously low. Or you may start going a little bit too high and get dangerously high, and so you have to look at the panel, which shows you horizon. It says you can't see other planes coming in, so there's instruments that show all the other people and the, the traffic in the air so that you don't collide. And all these instruments right there help you fly blind. And what he was telling us is, when you're flying into a cloud, you cannot trust your eyes, you have to trust your instruments. And I couldn't help but think in that moment, how applicable that is to the Christian life. Like there was just a bomb dropped on me right there. This is exactly what it means in life. So many times you and I fly blind. We have no clue what's coming next. We can't really see the way things are. We're trying to follow God, but it doesn't always look like it's working out good or God's ways. And we're flying blind. And when in those moments, God is saying to us, don't trust your eyes, trust my instrument, the word of God. In fact, in those moments when we're flying blind, the temptation is to use my eyes to perceive reality and try to make assertions about what's really going on. And God is saying, don't trust your eyes. You're going to harm yourself trying to fly according to your sight. Trust the instrument. Trust my word. Trust what I've spoken. That's true. And so if you want to know, in those moments when anxiety wells up, when you feel overwhelmed by your circumstances, when you just don't know what's coming next, when you want to know how to be at peace, how to learn how to be poised and grace-filled, you learn how to fly blind. And that's what I want to teach you this morning. And we're going to learn from a great teacher. His name is Moses. He had to learn how to fly blind. And we're going to see in the story today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 10 to start off. Now, for those of you joining us for the first time, we're on a sermon series going to the book of Exodus, chapter by chapter, working our way through it. And we're going to actually pick back up in some of the verses that we covered at the end of last week. But we need to retrace our steps some so we can understand what's coming next. Now, let me remind you of context for those of you who may not know it. Last week, we heard Moses dealing with some pretty intense why questions. He was saying, why, God, have you let this happen? Why have you brought this evil upon your people? Why have you not delivered us? Why, God, why? And I talked to you last week about how oftentimes we have why questions for God, but we don't need to know why. We need to know who. We need to know who our God is. And that was true for Moses. Moses didn't need to know why these things were happening. He needed to know who his God was. And God said, I'm going to reveal myself to you. 
I'm the, the God who redeems, I'm the God who adopts, and I'm the God who blesses. Now Moses, freshly off this revelation of God, is buoyed, and so he decides to go to the Israelites and tell them the good news. And if you remember last week, they utterly reject him. They won't listen because they are so broken in spirit because of their harsh slavery. But God says, no matter, I still want you to go to Pharaoh. And that's what we're picking back up on from last week. Look at what takes place, verses 10 through 13 in chapter 6. It says, so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So we talked about last week. This is the same lame excuse that Moses keeps making over and over and over again. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. He says, I am of uncircumcised lips. And you're going, what in the world does that mean? It's, it's referring to, most scholars believe, a, a, some kind of speech impediment. Like, he, he couldn't get the words out smoothly. If you were to go back to chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I am slow of speech and of tongue. Something didn't work right in his speech. And therefore, he felt like he was disqualified. He was incapable. He's just bringing that same excuse back up again. I can't do it, God. I can't do it. My lips aren't good enough. My mouth isn't good enough. Now, up to this point, every single time he's mentioned these excuses, God has always given him a promise of provision. He's met every single excuse with his adequacy, that God is adequate enough for every need that Moses has. And you would expect him to do this again right here. But the text actually does something really surprising. It veers off into left field and goes into a genealogy. It, just from 14 all the way to 27, it's a genealogy that seems like it's completely out of place. Now, it's not, but you don't understand the genealogy until you keep on reading and understand why it's there. So we're going to actually skip over the genealogy. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. And I want you to go to verses 28 to 30. And you're going to see something remarkably similar to what we just read. Here's what it says, verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? He's the same excuse. It sounds like this is a different event where he's saying the same thing, but it's actually not a different event. It's the same event. And what it's showing is that the genealogy is actually pertaining to his question of inability. The genealogy is supposed to answer why he should be able to do what he feels like he can't do. But again, you won't understand that until you keep reading a little bit more when God gives a more direct answer. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, then we're going to go back to the genealogy. So let's keep on reading chapter 7, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Here's the promise of provision, reminding him again, I know you don't feel like you can do this. I know you feel incapable, but don't worry, I've got you covered. I got Aaron who's going to be right by your side. You're going to tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron will tell Pharaoh what to say. You're going to be okay, Moses. Now, it's in the, the light of this, in context of understanding Aaron's role, that now the genealogy will begin to make sense. You just got to track through the genealogy. I'm, I'm not going to read every single name because I don't want to embarrass myself but we're going to go through, I'm going to show you verse by verse what it's going through. So it starts off like any other genealogy, listing what appears to be the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. Verse 14, it mentions the firstborn Reuben and gives his sons. 
Verse 15 gives a second born Simeon, lists his sons. Moves on, verse 16 gives a third born Levi, gives his three sons. And then you would expect in verse 17 to go to the fourth born Judah, because it just looks like he's tracking through, but it doesn't. It actually stops right there, and the rest of the time focuses in on Levi. So obviously, this is really not a lineage of Jacob, it's a lineage of Levi. So he goes on, um, verse 17, does the firstborn of Levi, Gershom, gives his sons. Then verse 18, the secondborn of Levi, Kohath, and gives his sons, the first of whom is Amram. That'll be an important name in a moment. Then verse 19, the, son, the third son of Levi, Merari. And then verse 20, you're going to see why this lineage is here. Let's read that verse together. It says, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses in the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. Okay, now we understand where he's going with this. He's trying to substantiate here Moses. The whole story's been about Moses. And you would fully expect the rest of the lineage to be entirely about Moses. But what you're going to find is Moses' name is not mentioned ever again. The focal point is not Moses. It's actually Aaron. So as it keeps going, 21 does another son, uh, Izhar, and then in verse 22, the son Uziel. And then verse 23, it gets to the main point. Aaron, read about it. It says this. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So he's talking about Aaron and Aaron's four sons. And it keeps on going. Verse 24, talking a bit more about the sons of Korah. And then in verse 25, it gives two more. Eliezer, who was one of the sons of Aaron, and then Eliezer's son, Phinehas. And so what you see the whole genealogy doing is pointing toward Aaron. This is why verses 25 and 20, excuse me, 26 and 27 say what they do. Read those with me. It says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Now, you might wonder why that's there, but you have to remember up to this point, all the focus has been on Moses. The whole story has been about Moses. Everybody understands why Moses is equipped to do what he's doing. Moses was the one, they'd all heard the story, who'd been put in a little basket ark in the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter had found him. They all knew Moses was the dude who had grown up in Pharaoh's court. They all knew he was the guy who had gone to wander for 40 years in the land of Midian and then had a moment where he met Almighty God. They knew about the burning bush. They knew about his calling. They knew that Moses was the dude who could put his hand in his robe and pull it out and it was leprous, put it back in and it was back to normal. They had heard that Moses, they'd seen it, that he could throw down his staff and it turns into a snake and pick it back up and it goes back into his staff. They knew about Moses' power, but nobody knew about this guy, Aaron. And so God, through this genealogy, goes through painstaking effort to remind us that Aaron is just as qualified as Moses to stand before Pharaoh. Why? Because God is trying to prove that his provision is always sufficient. He's saying, Moses is the one who's going to stand, but in all his inadequacy, I have provided a perfect, sufficient helpmate right beside him to get done what needs to get done. Aaron is the right lineage. Trust in him. All this is to help us see that God can overcome every single excuse we have. And he can use us because his provision is always perfect. Moses needed a reminder of that in that moment. But truth be told, Moses shouldn't have needed a reminder because he'd already been told a number of times. Every time he mentioned his uncircumcised lips and his slow of speech, God says, I'm gonna put Aaron with you, I'm gonna put Aaron with you. This wasn't new news for Moses. 
And it wasn't actually the turning point for his life, but there was one other bit of new news that he received back in chapter 7, verse 1, that actually was the turning point for him. That after he receives this news, he never once again questions God about whether he should do this or not. It was that little detail in verse 1 of chapter 7 when he said, you will be like God to Pharaoh. This was the first time Moses had ever heard that uttered upon him, that he would be like God to Pharaoh. And actually, if you look at the Hebrew, it's even stronger. It, it doesn't say he'll be like God. It actually says in Hebrew, and Moses, you will be God to Pharaoh. There's a word for like or as in Hebrew, and it's left out. He's saying you, you're going to be God to Pharaoh. Now, I've got to clarify. He's not saying you're going to become divine. You're going to be a, a counterfeit God. To me. He's not saying that. What he's saying is you're going to exhibit all the power of God. Every time Pharaoh looks at you, Moses, he's going to see God. You're going to have power over the elements. You're going to have power over the bugs, over the livestock, over the weather, over even life and death, over these plagues that are going to be coming. When he looks at you, he's going to see Almighty God. Now, I want you to know this was an incredibly important point for Moses because the thing he was most afraid of was going toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little conjecturing here. I'm not 100% sure about this. It just seems to me as I study the passage that there's some of this going on. It appears to me that Moses has some kind of uncontrollable fear, likely based on some trauma he had growing up in Pharaoh's house. If you notice the way he behaves, it is, it is irrational fear overwhelming him again and again. I don't know if any of you have experienced trauma in this room or know somebody who has, especially childhood trauma, abuse in the home. That, that's, not, that's not easily overcome. It haunts you decades and decades and decades into life. It informs the way you view the world around you and, and fear that tends to well up. And you see inside Moses right now this fear well up over and over and over again. I don't know what all happened. I know he was scared to death of Pharaoh. If you go back to when he was 40 years old, it says that he realized the word had gotten out. He killed an Egyptian. He ran for it because he knew Pharaoh would come after him. And sure enough, Pharaoh was trying to kill him. There was some kind of power play, I guess because Moses was an outsider. He grew up in Pharaoh's court, but they all knew he wasn't really Egyptian. Maybe he had been, maybe he had power exercised over him. Maybe he'd been abused. I don't know what happened, but he was suffering from incredible fear. Because he'd seen the power of Pharaoh in Pharaoh's household. He knew he could not come against it. That's why he keeps questioning again and again, I I can't do this, I can't do this, I'm not good enough. Excuse, excuse, excuse. Because he's terrified. Until God says, you will be like God to Pharaoh. In that moment, a light bulb goes off in Moses' head and he realizes he doesn't have to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. This isn't Moses versus Pharaoh, this is Pharaoh against God. And he knew his God could win that war. He knew that when God fought the battle, God was going to win. And from this moment, you see a change in Moses. He no longer argues. He no longer throws out excuses. He's buoyed by this. And and you would almost hope that God would just stop talking right here. But he doesn't. He has three more verses of talk to Moses to say, well, before you get too excited, Moses, let me go ahead and give you some bad news. It's not going to be easy. Look at verses three through five. Listen to these last words God gives him. He says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. He says, okay, yes, I'm going to overcome Pharaoh. He's going to let the people of God go, but it's not going to be easy because his heart is going to be hardened and he will not listen to you. What he's trying to do is warn him. They're going to come moments, Moses, when it's going to feel like I'm not winning. They're going to come moments when it's going to feel like maybe Pharaoh is actually winning over me. Feel like he's never going to change his mind. This is never going to come. This is impossible. Where you're going to be overwhelmed. And he's saying, Moses, when that moment comes, don't trust your eyes. Trust your instrument. Trust my word. I'm telling you right here, right now, I'm going to win. Don't trust your eyes. Trust me. And I believe God wants to say that a million times over to us in this room. Every single one of us in here, we are going to have battle after battle, hardship after hardship, and we got to get ready for it. There's a lie that permeates far too many churches. It's a lie that the Christian life is going to be easy. There's a whole gospel called a prosperity gospel built around it. It says, as long as you love Jesus, all your financial needs are going to be met. You're always going to be healthy. You're always going to be happy. And this lie comes into the church, and it says, listen, you just go to church, be a part of it. You're going to have friends, a community of faith. You're going to have money because you're going to be a good steward. God's going to bless you like crazy. You're going to have health. Everything's going to go well for you. You're going to be happy. And then you come to church, and you lose your job. You don't know anybody, and you feel all alone, and you're given to the church, and nothing's coming back, and you're going, well, what's the easy life? And the reason it's not coming is because it was never promised to you. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It didn't say it's going to be easy. It just says it's going to be worth it. And what we have to understand when these moments come, and every single one of us have these moments, when our job situation is just stressing the fire out of us, when, when we or someone we love is going through a health crisis and we're scared to death, when we're looking at a relationship, our marriage, something is just it's not working right, and we're going, I don't know how to overcome this. When we're struggling with whatever it may be, overwhelmed, depressed, anxious, in those moments, every bit of us wants to throw in the towel and say, it's just not working. I'm trying real hard, but this whole faith thing isn't working out for me. God's saying, don't trust your eyes. Trust my instrument. Trust my word. I'm telling you, it will be worth it. Walk with me. But every single time those moments come, we have to decide, will I trust my eyes or will I trust his word? Aaron and Moses were confronted with that same decision in that moment. It had been great if he'd stopped at verse 2. You'll be like God. Aaron's going to talk for you, but he doesn't. He goes on to verses 3 through 5, and now they've got to decide, are we going to trust you anyway, God? And praise the Lord, they decide to finally trust their God. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. They completely obey. Now I want to stop right here. I want to say something. I pray, I pray so hard that when I'm in my 80s, I'm that hot after the Lord. I'm, I'm that ready to do whatever the Lord tells me to do. I pray my faith just grows. And I also want to say this. If there are some of you in here and you'd, you'd consider yourself uh, you know, on the elder side of things, don't you dare tell me that God can't use you. Their ministry starts at 80 and 83. I don't know what your age is, but it's probably not a whole lot older than that. God can use you. As long as you have breath in your lungs, God can use you. There are no excuses. But let me go ahead and forewarn you, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy either. 
And here they are, they obey. I'm going to do what you say. And sure enough, right when they obey, the hard times come. Let's finish up the passage of Scripture, verses 8 through 13. Here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So here's the moment of truth. They're obeying God. They go before Pharaoh, and God says, okay, when you get in there, he's going to ask you to give a sign. Here's you do. You throw it on your staff, and it's to become a serpent. Now, you've got to understand how nervous Moses and Aaron are. Remember, Moses has been the one suffering with all this trauma. He knows Pharaoh and his power. He's scared to death to go before him, but he's going before him just going, oh, please, God, let this stinking staff turn into a serpent. And they come before it, throws down the staff, it becomes a serpent, and you know both Moses and Aaron go, booyah, check that out, Pharaoh. They're high-fiving, it worked. I can't believe it, it worked. And they're expecting Pharaoh to at least be shocked by it. And then there's Pharaoh, arms crossed, completely unimpressed. It's going, please, it's just a parlor trick. Egyptians, come here, show them what you can do. And these Egyptians come, and they throw their staffs down, and it says their staffs become serpents, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Listen, here's what you've got to understand. Moses didn't see this coming. God forgot to mention to Moses that when you do works of power, Pharaoh's going to be able to do some works of power as well. Now, I don't fully grasp what all's taking place here. I've got to be honest with you. When it says, I don't know how it happened, I understand how Moses' staff or Aaron's staff turns into a serpent because Almighty supernatural God is making it happen. But there are some who say, well, the magician staff couldn't really have become serpents because they didn't have power, and therefore it must have been some kind of trick, maybe an illusion or something. And maybe that's the case. But if I were being honest with you, I think it actually did happen uh, for two reasons. The chief reason, because the text actually says, and they became serpents. Staffs became serpents. So it seems to say there was some transformation that took place. But the second reason why is because there really is a dark power at work that has supernatural power. It says that they were able to do this by their secret arts or by their dark arts. I want to remind you what I told you back in the first chapter of this book, that there was a real power behind Pharaoh fighting against the people of God, and it was Satan. Because Satan does not want God's people to receive God's blessings, otherwise they might praise God. Satan doesn't want that to happen. So he's always trying to stop it, and make no mistake about it, Satan has power. He has power on this earth. And so it would not be far-fetched for God to allow Satan to have some power in this season of hardening, for them actually to become serpents, to shock everybody and to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so here's the moment of truth. This is the moment Moses flies into the cloud. This is the moment it no longer makes sense. The one thing he'd been given to show his power has now been matched by Pharaoh and his magicians, and it looks like they've gone toe-to-toe and they're equals. And you got to know at this moment, Moses is going, what in the world is going on here? This is when he really had to decide to fly blind, using his instruments, not his eyes, using God's truth and not his eyes. But he saw something that gave him hope, something that you and I can easily miss as an incidental part of the story that's actually the crux 
of the whole story. It was some small statement in verse 12. I want to finish up looking back at that verse again. Look what it says. It says, for each man cast down his staff, talking about the magicians, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So the staffs are down there going all around, and Aaron's staff, the serpent, swallows up the serpents of the magicians. Now, it sounds like it's a cool little thing off on the side, but that's actually the focal point of the story because that sets up what's going to happen over the next few chapters. Because what you're seeing right now in that one little move is God declaring war, not just on Pharaoh, but on all the gods of Egypt. And in this moment, it begins the 10 plagues. And the 10 plagues are the methodical means by which God kills every Egyptian god one by one by one, displaying that he is the only power. Now, I don't know if you thought about this before, but in, in Egyptian mythology and Egyptian ideology, the serpent was a sign of divinity. That's why in the bumper video before you saw, you think about King Tut's headdress and it has a cobra in the front, that serpent, because the serpent was a sign of divine power. And so when you have God's serpent eating up the magician's serpent, it's saying that God is going to take up and consume the Egyptian gods. In fact, if you were to go to Exodus 12, 12, as it's talking about the Passover, I'm not going to go there, but it says that God was executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. It doesn't say on Pharaoh. It says on the gods of Egypt. And here's what's so crazy about what we're going to witness coming next. The 10 plagues is very methodical. They take in clusters the Egyptian deities. Most believe there's about 80 or so major deities in the Egyptian pantheon. And they're found in three major clusters that kind of work with the three major elements of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. And if you look at the pattern of the plagues that are coming, they follow that. The first two are about the Nile River. You got blood, you got frogs. The next four are about the land, maybe the crops or the livestock. And then the last four are about the sky, hell coming down all the way to the destroyer angel that comes out of the sky. And it seems to be following these clusters just showing divine power over all of Egypt's gods so that everyone will know what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says, I want all of Egypt to know that I am Yahweh. I am the true God. And if I have to kill every single one of Egyptian gods to do it, I will do so one by one. Let me tell you why that matters. God is revealing his character to us in this passage of Scripture with that one little element. He's showing us that he is jealous for his own glory and he will not let any other competitor come close. If there are Egyptian gods, if it's Pharaoh, if it's anybody else, he will win that war because he will always guard his own honor and his own name. And that's really good news for those of us who are all about the glory and the honor of the name of Jesus. Those of us who want to expand the name of God's glory, it's great news. It means that every battle God's going to win because he will always protect his glory. That's really bad news for those who want to compete against the glory of God. You see, what you've got to understand in this passage of Scripture is that this, this story is not trying to put Moses on a pedestal and make him the hero of the story. And sometimes we read it that way. Like, man, that guy Moses had so much faith and he's got guy, God, his little sidekick by his side, helping him with all this power. This story is not about Moses with God by his side. This story is about God with Moses by his side. God is the hero of the story. Moses is just the one doing everything God tells him to do. Moses is the sidekick. God is the hero. And as long as Moses understood that, he knew he didn't have to be afraid because the battle belonged to the Lord. And he could just trust that over to God. Okay, this one didn't go the way I thought it would go, but this battle belongs to you, God. This is your war, not mine. And he was able to keep peace and keep moving forward. 
And I want to say to you, you have to make sure you always get the order right. I think sometimes we fall prey to viewing God as our sidekick. I'm going to make it into life. I'm going to, I'm going to live this life, and I hope God comes through. I'm going to pray every once in a while. I'm going to go to church every once in a while. I'm going to do a few things to sprinkle a little God into my life, hoping that God will come through when I need him. And we're still trying to be the hero of our story. Look, there's no hope in that. When we fight our battles, we can be overcome if we're trying to be the hero. But when you go ahead and switch positions and you say, all right, this thing I'm going through right now, God, this is your battle, not mine. I'm just your sidekick. You just tell me what to do, where to go, what to give, and I'll do it. Because I just want to obey. This is your battle. And the moment you come to that position, you know God will win every single one of those battles. And you no longer have to be afraid. You see, you're learning how to fly blind in that moment. You're no longer contingent upon your circumstances to work out. You're saying the full battle belongs to you, Lord, and you don't ever lose. So I give it to you. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. God's word says that all things really will work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God's word says the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth being compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to you. God's word says that God will richly supply all of your needs according to the glory of grace in Christ Jesus. God is for you. He has redeemed you and purchased you, and he has a heaven, an eternal reward, and an abundant life on this earth in store for you. It's not always going to be easy, but it's always going to be worth it. And the question is, will you give the battles to him? Will you let him be the hero of your life? Will you let him be the one who dictates where you go and what you do, and you just say, yes, sir, I'll do what you tell me to do. I'll go where you tell me to go. God, I'm your sidekick. I'm ready to serve you. Because when you get that right, peace overwhelms you. And you become that person who come high water, low water, you are unmoved. You have poise and confidence because you know the battle belongs to him. I believe today God wants to work in some of you and remind you of that. Because here's what I'm convinced of. Every single one of you in this room has some battle you're facing. I believe there are some of you right now that are struggling to sleep Struggle to go to sleep at night because of anxiety, because you're overwhelmed by things. Struggling to stay asleep, you wake up early because you're overwhelmed by all these thoughts plaguing your mind, the things you got to get done. You feel overwhelmed. There's too much on your plate. You don't know where to go. This relationship is on the rocks. You don't know if it's going to make it. You feel like you're, you're on the verge of getting fired from work. You don't know how you're going to be able to keep going forward with it. You don't know how you're going to pay your bills. It's getting close to the end of the month. You're not even ready. You, you're sick. You're overwhelmed. You got ulcers. You're just, you don't know where to go, what to do. Look, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if that's you. I just happen to have a feeling there's many of you in this room that there's some things right now that overwhelm you. And what that thing is, whatever it is, or what those things are, those are your test of faith. You're flying blind, and God is saying, trust my word, not your eyes. And so I want to give you a chance to respond to that. I'm, I'm going to give us a chance to respond in multiple ways. So Reggie and the band, they're going to come out. They're going to get set up and ready for us. And we're going to respond in one of two ways. Because I believe today, God wants to show you his power. And we're going to sing a song in a moment that it just declares, I'm going to see a victory. Because the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm going to see a victory. And there are some of you right now that the only thing you need to do is to sing that song of praise to the Lord. And you need to remind yourself that no matter what life may look like right now, no matter what may come, you're going to see victory. And the reason you're going to see victory is because God has already shown you victory through his son, Jesus. You, you do realize the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the central message that gives us hope that no matter what it looks like, God's still going to win, right? 
You realize that on the, the cross in that one moment when it looked like, like God had been killed, Satan had won. He takes on flesh. He dies on the cross. It's over. That's the moment you and I know the redemption of humanity was secure. Now, Satan found out three days later, but you and I know that it was accomplished on the cross. And we see that moment and we realize if God can take the cross and he can use it for the redemption of humanity, God really can win in every single situation, no matter what it looks like. So whatever you're going through right now, would you be willing to say, I'm going to see a victory because the battle belongs to you, Lord. Now, I want to say there are some of you just singing the song is not going to be enough. You need to put the battle back in the hands of the Lord. There's a couple ways you can do that. You could come find one of us pastors and say, hey, would you pray for me? I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed by this particular issue. This is more than I can bear, and I'm, I just need some support. And we'll pray for you by name. Or maybe you just want to bow down on the steps. You don't have to come talk to us. You can entrust the battle back to the Lord. Say, I'm going to give it to you, Lord. You might need to do that in a moment. If you, if you need to, I'll give you a chance, but there's one last group I want to talk to. There are some of you right now, I believe, you're at a place where the Lord is saying, I know you're overwhelmed right now, but there is a war waging for your soul. There is a battle taking place right now, the most important battle of your life. It is a battle for your soul. And the enemy does not want you to come to the kingdom of the beloved son. He wants to keep you in the domain of darkness. And the only way for you to be rescued, to win this war, is to say, God, I give you everything. Remember what I said before, we, we wanna make God our sidekick, and God says, no, 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 no. I'm the hero of your story too, but you gotta trust me. You gotta come underneath me and give me everything. The number one excuse I hear from people who aren't willing to follow the Lord is there are just some things they're not ready to give up to the Lord yet. But God's very clear. It's all or nothing. You don't get to hold compartments back. The reason you're not seeing victory in your life is because there are things that you're trying to fight on your own. And there comes a moment you have to say, I give you everything, Lord. It's really easy to make Jesus your savior. Yeah, wash me clean from all my wrongdoing. That's the easy part. The hard part is to make him Lord. Where he gets to tell you what to do, where to go, how to spend your life, how to spend your money, how to spend your days. But if you want the battle to be his and not yours and secure the victory, it means you give all yourself to him. And that's when you discover the victory. You have to die to self and raise up in brand new life. I believe there's some of you who are here today and you need to take that, that moment. If that's you, we're gonna have pastors down front ready to meet with you. We can have baptisms today before this service is over. In fact, I'm, I'm praying there may be some of you who get to baptize before I even send you out. If you need to, you can come forward. So I'm gonna ask you to stand up right now. All of you in the room, stand up. I'm gonna ask the pastoral staff and spouses to come down front to receive you with prayer. And here's, here's what I'm asking you. If there's a battle you need to put in the Lord's hands, there's a chance for you to come, be prayed over. Come bow down, put the battle in the Lord's hands. Remind yourself it's his war, not yours, and he can win it. And if today you're saying, I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm ready to be baptized, I'm ready to show that the old me is dead. There's a brand new me who's given himself completely over to the Lord. We will meet with you. We'll counsel with you. We'll get you your Jesus in my place t-shirt and we'll see some baptisms today if that's the step you need to take. But it's open. You respond as you need to.